3: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
4: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
1: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
0: In tedious exile, now too long detained, Daedalus languished for his native land. The sea foreclosed his flight, yet thus he said, Though earth and water in subjection laid, O cruel Minos, thy dominion be, We'll go through air, for sure the air is free. Then to new arts his cunning thought applies, And to improve the work of nature tries. A row of quills in gradual
2: order placed, Rise by degrees in length from first to last, As on a cliff the ascending thicket grows, Or different reeds the rural pipe compose. Along the middle runs a twine of flax, the bottom stems are joined by pliant wax. Thus well compact, a hollow bending brings the
0: fine composure into real wings. His boy, young Icarus, that near him stood, unthinking of his fate with smiles pursued, the floating feathers which the moving air bore loosely from the ground and wasted here and there, or with the wax impertinently played and with his childish tricks the great design delayed
2: the final master stroke at last imposed and now the neat machine completely closed fitting his pinions on a flight he tries and hung self-balanced in the beaten skies Then thus instructs his child, My boy, take care to wing your course along the middle air. If low the surges wet your flagging plumes, If high the sun the melting wax consumes, Steer between both nor to the northern skies, Nor south Orion turn your giddy eyes, But follow me, let me before you lay, Rules for the flight and mark the pathless way.
0: Then teaching with a fond concern his son, he took the untried wings and fixed them on, but fixed with trembling hands, and as he speaks the tears rolled gently down his aged cheeks, then kissed and in his arms embraced him fast, but knew not this embrace must be the last, and mounting upward as he wings his flight, Back on his charge he turns in aching sight, as parent birds, when their first callow care, leave the high nest to tempt the liquid air, then cheers him on and oft with fatal art reminds the stripling to perform his part. These is the angler at the silent brook,
2: or mountain shepherd leaning on his crook or gaping plowmen from the vale descries, they stare and view them with religious eyes, and straight conclude them gods, since none but they, through their own azure skies, could
0: find a way. Now Delos, Peros, on the left are seen, and Samos, favoured by Jove's haughty queen, upon the right the isle of Lebinthos named, and fair Calimny for its honey famed. When now the boy whose childish thoughts aspire to loftier aims and make him ramble higher, grown wild and wanton, more emboldened flies far from his guide and soars among the skies. The softening wax that felt a nearer sun dissolved apace and soon began to run. The youth in vain his melting pinions
2: shakes, his feathers gone, no longer air he takes. Oh, father, father, as he strove to cry, down to the sea he tumbled from on high and found his fate, yet still subsists by fame among those waters that retain his name.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And that was, of course, from Ovid's Metamorphoses, the Garth and Dryden translation, the story of Daedalus and Icarus, one of our favorites that, uh... Actually, I'd say is a sort of recurring theme on invention as well. Yeah, yeah. It was one of our – I believe we wanted to originally call
2: the show Daedalus, in yeah. fact. Um, uh, and, and it was decided that that was too obscure.
0: The, the business masters <laughs> were like, people will not know what that is. <laughs> right. um, you
2: know, I, I, I enjoyed reading through this uh, this excerpt from, from Ovid here because um, – even though we have talked at length about Daedalus and Icarus before, and or at least in passing, you know, bringing up just sort of the metaphor and the invention, and talked of, we've talked about Daedalus's other uh, uh, inventions and myth as well. But uh, this this re- reading, I think, is is rather nice because it also captures the the humanity of the characters, and and certainly uh, as a father. You know, I can certainly relate to some of
0: these feelings as he's trying to prepare his boy for the um, the challenges ahead. There's real passion, and there's passion in the different uh, concerns of the father and the son. The father wants freedom, wants escape, and he wants safety, mm-hmm. and the son wants fun. It's basically um, Cat Stevens' song, <laughs> uh, "Father and Son," uh, <laughs> but in in uh, in mythic form. Now, there are a lot of themes you could get into uh, when discussing the story of Icarus and Daedalus. One of the main themes, of course, that uh, people draw out of this story is the theme of overconfidence and overconfidence leading to disaster. Right. Yes, and so that is going to be our our main focus for these episodes.
2: uh we we're pretty excited about it. We did no research and <laughs> that's uh, we, not true. and we think we can we can
0: probably get four or five episodes out of this, so we can just wing it you know <laughs> you know we're, ah, winging we, it Icarus. yes we yes. Could, yes, that is what it is. I think that is I wonder if that's where the phrase comes from. Hmm. you're just winging it like Icarus I don't know. OK, well, if you got lost in the English uh, couplets there of Garth and Dryden and, and so forth, uh, could Robert, could you just give a brief summary of what actually happens in the myth of Icarus and Daedalus?
2: Yeah, yeah. Just breaking it down to the, the, the major plot points here. Um, these, these are artificial wings crafted by the master engineer Daedalus, and then he, uh, he helps his son Icarus put them on. They're using these to escape from uh, Minos, mm-hmm. he who is the, the master of the maze and the master of the Minotaur. Right. Right. Um, and uh, so, you know, he he puts these, these amazing wings on him, but then Icarus flies too close to the sun, the rays melt the wax, and he falls to his death. And he's been specifically warned. Yeah, don't fly too close to the sun, it's going to melt the wax, you're going to plummet and fall, but... He still flies too high. He flies beyond uh, uh, the the his ability. Flies beyond the engineering uh,
0: constraints of the wings and perishes for it. I love the word choice in the poem in the English version. He wants to ramble higher. Right. You know, he's he's having fun. He's out there. He's like it'll be fine. Yeah. And, and I think one of the key things to keep in mind about this myth, if we're looking at
2: it and focusing on overconfidence, is that. Daedalus is a master uh, at, at creating these wings, and mm-hmm. Icarus is no slouch at flying with them. Obviously, right. so it's not a you know an emperor's new clothes scenario where one is confident. You know, in, in, without any underlying skill, mm-hmm. like there's plenty of skill to go around here. But the idea is that Icarus ascends just a little too high. He he goes to that place uh, that he is warned to uh, to uh, to avoid, and that is his downfall.
0: Even though there is a real basis for confidence, the confidence in the brain exceeds the confidence warranted by circumstances. Right. But then that
2: becomes the whole focus of the myth, right? Nobody stops to admire like, hey, Daedalus really built some amazing wings and Icarus was really right. great at flying them. Uh-huh. No, we just focus on the fact that he, he dies and falls into the ocean.
0: And th- this very idea of like overconfidence that, you know, that, that meets a tragic end is such a powerful and common theme of myths and drama throughout history.
2: Yeah, myths and drama and of course human histories, which yeah. of course Im- <laughs> involve both myth-making and and, uh, and dramatic storytelling. T- but there's just so much of it. It's such a frequent trope that on one hand, it's easy to just not think about it. Like mm-hmm. this is just what happens in our stories. So, you know, we either can't get enough of tales of hubris and uh, uh, and overconfidence or it's just such a common feature of human enterprise and ambition that it's just a necessary plot point in almost any tale worth
0: telling. Yeah, I think it's not a coincidence that so many figures from history display hubris and overconfidence because I think overconfidence is the kind of trait that in a lot of cases specifically is what gets you into the history books.
2: Yeah, and uh, and from a historical point of view um – you know, granted, it's not always a simple matter because, you know, when you encounter the all-too-frequent tales of an overconfident but inept ruler, you have to consider that, you know, uh, the, these, uh, you know the history is told by the victors and this mm-hmm. is likely you know, the story about a, about, a, about a deposed ruler. But sure enough, you look at any, um, you know, history of kings and emperors, you'll inevitably find multiple examples of someone who is pointed out for their overconfidence. Like this, this ruler became too overconfident and that was their downfall. And of course, the world of mythic expression is just full of wonderful examples to chew on. Um, uh, one that certainly comes to mind in judeo-christian traditions and especially in milton's literary treatment of the character is uh, that of satan mm-hmm. uh, like the classic character who uh, who you know was prideful enough to rebel against the all-powerful creator god
0: and uh, and then falls for it and that is actually a concept from the bible itself from uh, from the tanakh i mean in proverbs 16:18 you get pride goeth before destruction the haughty spirit before a fall yeah uh, and then, of course, we we already talked about about Icarus.
2: But yeah, you'll find plenty of examples of God smiting immortal underlings or mere mortals for defying them and often their central crime is basically that they, they, they dared to think themselves greater than they are they overstepped their status and place in the grand hierarchy in fact in addition to uh, to Icarus I think at least two tales are worth pointing out but these are by far not the only stories of, of gods punishing mortals and immortals for overstepping their boundaries mm. uh, one of my favorites is the the web of Arachne mm. Uh, so this is this is a wonderful tale in which you have the, the mortal Arachne who challenges Athena, goddess of wisdom and crafts, to a weaving contest, which of course is always a terrible thing to do. never challenge a god uh, to a contest.
0: Unless it's a fiddle contest and right. that god is the devil and you're – down in Georgia,
2: right, and then yes, maybe you can pull it off in, the, in that in that in, in that specific scenario, um, but uh, but it, but is the, in this scenario, you know, you're not dealing with the devil; you're dealing with the goddess Athena, and so uh, Athena, as one might expect, crafts a perfect tapestry, uh, resplendent in depictions of the gods punishing mortals for their hubris. <laughs> uh, and Arachne creates an equally awesome tapestry, but hers depicts all the various ways that the Gods have manipulated and tormented mortals. Um, so she's getting a little fresh. Yeah, well they're both putting a lot of um, uh, you know a, a lot of uh, emotion into their uh, their work here. They're and they're both kind of taunting the other with the, their subject matter. The problem is Arachne is a mortal and Athena is a god. Uh, and of course the Greek gods are not known for their reasonable demeanor. Right, so they don't play fair. Right, they don't. And so Athena doesn't play fair. Instead, she becomes enraged, she destroys Arachne's work, beats her and leaves her to suicidal shame. And after she has died, uh, Arachne becomes the spiders of Earth, and that's kind of you know, the origin story for spiders and, and so it's forth. Trevor Burrus Biological, ideological myth, right? It tells yeah. why
0: spiders weave.
2: Yeah. But, but one of the interesting wrinkles in all of this is that both tapestries are accurate from their creator's points of view. The, the ending to this story is either yet another example of the god's cruelty or another example of mortals being rightfully punished for their pride. Um, And again, uh, uh, much like uh, the Icarus scenario, Arachne is highly skilled. Like she crafts a work that rivals, or even equals, or or perhaps even surpasses the work of the goddess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she may not have have overstepped her ability, but she certainly
0: oversteps her place. Right. It's a different kind of pride. She wasn't overconfident in how good of a weaver she is. She was overconfident in what she could get away with saying. Yeah. And then, of course, another uh, example and one that we come back to again and again
2: on the show is that of Prometheus. Uh, Prometheus, the titan, having stolen from the gods uh, the the, the secret of fire, defied them in giving this secret to the mortals. Uh, He is then punished uh, for all eternity for this sin.
0: Yeah, Another one that comes to my mind is the myth of Phaeton, the the son of the god Helios. Oh. Remember, he wants to pilot the chariot. He's Mm -hmm. like, I want to get in the chariot, but uh, he's warned it would not be a good idea Idea and he's like, no, no, I can handle it. I right. can do it. Yeah, I can drive. And he gets in there, and the horses. I I don't remember exactly what happens. Like the horses don't recognize him or something. They go nuts, and the chariot crashes into the earth or something. Or right. there's general disaster. Right.
2: Yeah, that's a good one. And then there are various other uh, tales as well that that we could we could uh, we could focus on because uh, again, it's just a recurring theme in Greek mythology. But But also, uh, you know, other uh, belief systems as as well, like, uh, for instance, just briefly, there's a a fun Chinese example of pride and punishment in which uh, the Yellow Emperor makes use of of Ying Long, the responding dragon, to execute the god of war, Yu, after he dared to raise arms against the Yellow Emperor.
0: So there, that would be a tale of the god of war being overconfident in his ability to overthrow right. the, yeah. the
2: king. Yeah. Yeah. So many times you do see a more of a, a militant example of this. You know, the idea that oh, you think you can defeat the god, but you cannot, and you're punished for that. Um, either you know, and then other times it's a contest or something to that effect.
0: One thing that I love in the Greek conception of, of hubris is that there was a goddess that existed purely to splatter people who displayed arrogance and overconfidence. And this was the goddess Nemesis who – I really think we, we – I, I wish we had a nemesis today. <laughs> uh, so I found – I was looking around for stuff about Nemesis and I found this amazing thing that was a, um, a hymn to the goddess Nemesis composed by somebody from ancient Greece named uh, Mesomedes and this is a translation by somebody named D yelled uh so i've got to read this 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 boiled my brain Winged nemesis, turner of the scales of life, blue-eyed goddess, daughter of justice, who with your unbending bridle dominate the vain arrogance of men and loathing man's fatal vanity, obliterate black envy beneath your wheel, unstable and leaving no imprint, the fate of men is tossed, you who come unnoticed in an instant to subdue the insolent head. You measure life with your hand and with frowning brows hold the yoke, Hail, blessed immortal goddess, winged nemesis, turning the scales of life, imperishable and holy goddess nemesis, victory of unfurled wings, powerful, infallible, who shares the altar with justice and furious at human pride, casts a man into the abyss of Tartarus. (laughs) Yeah, when I read that uh, at home the other day, I like literally exclaimed out loud. um, (laughs) uh, While I'm not usually a big like cast people into Tartarus kind of guy, you know, I don't love like eternal torment and hell mm-hmm. and all that. I, I do kind of wish for a nemesis sometimes to like fly in, scoop up the fatally vain and arrogant leaders who, you know, inflict their overconfidence on everybody else and kind of just toss them under the wheel.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I too love this concept of, of nemesis. Uh, it, it, also a frequent subject of, of paintings. You'll see a lot of, uh, you know, European paintings of a nemesis that really uh, t- take advantage of these angelic uh, properties Mm -hmm. that are described here, this winged uh, uh, female form that is beautiful and terrifying.
0: An embodiment of something kind of like karma, you know, divine retribution, the goddess that comes to avenge against you when you become too prideful. Though I do think it's actually more complicated than we usually think of hubris in the modern sense, right? Because like... The way we use hubris, it really does just generally mean like pride, arrogance, and overconfidence. But I, uh, I think you were looking into something about how the ancient Greeks had a more complicated and specific, yeah, uh, definition. Yeah, of it, it gets it gets uh, interesting. Uh, I was
2: looking at um, at uh, the Oxford Classical Dictionary, and uh, as N. R. E. Fisher pointed out, uh, it was really more of intentionally dishonoring behavior. Hmm. And the author points to Aristotle as providing a solid understanding of Greek hubris. Uh, So Aristotle uh, contends that hubris was, quote, doing and saying things at which the victim incurs shame, not in order that one may achieve anything other than what is done, but simply to get pleasure from it. For those who act in return for something do not commit hubris. They avenge themselves. The cause of the pleasure for those committing hubris is that by harming people, they think themselves superior. That is why the young and the rich are hubristic as they think they are superior when they commit hubris. This is fun. so it's just sadism. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah. It's just like being mean for mean's sake and being mm. like hurting people in a dishonorable way. And I think Specifically, because it makes you
0: feel superior, right?
2: Yeah, and and it is also worth noting that like this is apparently really key to the the system of honor and dishonor that was really important to Greek society.
0: That's right. I think I mean one thing that's kind of hard to understand is like when you read ancient Greek literature, you might notice that they seem to have a different idea of morality than we usually do. Mm-hmm. Like for them, th- their concepts of morals often have more to do with with things that are considered honorable versus things that are considered, say, uh, for the good of others. Right. Uh, and, you know, it almost, what you were just reading reminds me of the classical Greek theory of humor, which we talked about in our Flatus Ex Machina episode. So that Plato and Aristotle basically, said, this is hard to imagine because it sounds so so hateful, but, you know these ancient greek philosophers are like things are funny because they make you realize you're superior to other people <laughs> uh so plato in his uh philebus dialogue is discussing the nature of pleasure and he says you know there are different kinds of pleasures he's talking about why pleasures of the mind are better than pleasures of the flesh of the of the body and he's talking about laughing at people. And he says, you know, one of the main things that's great about laughing at people is that you can laugh at people who don't recognize their own misfortune. So there are people who are stupid, but they think they're smart. Mm-hmm. Or there are people who are ugly, but they think they're handsome. And that's really funny. Right. Yeah, but in in, in this, you know, it gets more specifically into the use of violence. Um,
2: and, and hubris was taken very seriously in Athens, uh, as there was a law of hubris. In this context, I've seen it defined more specifically in this kind of this is basically what Aristotle said, but uh, an even shorter version would be the intentional use of violence to humiliate
0: or degrade. Yeah, again, kind of a sadism thing. Yeah. It's like, uh, I'm better than you, and I'll show you by hurting you.
2: Yeah, and, uh, and in Athens, unlike murder charges, which could only be brought forth by the family of the victim, charges of hubris, like charges of treason or impiety, could be leveled by anyone at anyone. Mm. So it's we're talking about shameful conduct that ultimately threatens the shame, honor, building, blocks of society
0: itself. You know, I do see a connection, even though th- this is different than what we usually think of as hubris. I, I see what's going on here. Like, I see the the, uh, the conceptual link, the link between pride, arrogance, overconfidence on one hand and sadism on the other. I mean, yeah. it, it sadism— almost seems to kind of imply an assumed pride and arrogance and overconfidence. Yeah. It, it assumes a worldview without stating it that one is, you know, better, more deserving than other people and that their fates are subordinate to your own.
2: Yeah. It, but it is, it is weird to think of this from like a modern standard because – I you know I can think of numerous examples of of individuals, especially like popular celebrity type individuals, where you you think of them and you think, "Oh well, that person is clearly uh guilty of hubris and yet by the Greek definition, I don't know, have they actually used violence against someone like one of the examples a political example that was brought up was like if if one politician struck another during a speech like that's but i don't know in ancient greece maybe that was that was an easier thing to occur and certainly there are examples of things like that occurring in american political history but uh
0: i mean not recently <laughs> so it, but well no but i mean i think that, yes you not coming to physical violence but i could say that that's an extension of the impulse you see in just sort of like bullying and blatant disrespect yes. and all that where you're you are assuming a position of superiority that denies that you would even have to to speak on another person's terms. Right. Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. So, I think we see plenty of examples of things that are certainly in the spirit of, of Greek hubris, but not the definition of actual physical violence. They fall short of that, but perhaps not by much. All right. On that note, we're going to take our first break. But when we come back, we will we'll get further into this question of overconfidence, and we'll start we'll start looking at it uh, you know, beyond uh, mythology and history, and more uh, at our actual daily lives
0: and our actual inner world.
2: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray. All right, we're back. Okay, so we all think we know what overconfidence is. We know it when we see it. It's a common enough character flaw that there are millennia-old strains of drama and comedy that basically just exist to punish it over and over again for our amusement and entertainment. Yeah, and of
2: course, we always have to remember with tales like that, it, it, This it's not just about the subject of the tale, but it's about the consumer of the tale. You know, mm. a lot of times we're— we're taking in these tales of hubris uh, not only to relish in the downfall of uh, these various villains uh, in our lives and in our histories and in our our, our world, uh, but also as cautionary tales uh, you know, like uh, again, warnings
0: not to ascend too high towards the sun, that sort of thing. Trevor Burrus Right. Uh, so we know overconfidence means, of course, having too much confidence, but you got to go one level down from that to understand the idea, try to define confidence. and When you do that, I think you do run into problems because you discover confidence can mean a number of sort of different things that mm-hmm. are related but separate. So I was looking at a few just dictionary definitions to help get these uh, in order and, and I think the Merriam-Webster ones captured it pretty well. So one is a feeling or consciousness of one's powers or of reliance on one's circumstances. So applied to the self, that's basically the statement, I can do this. Yeah, And that confidence could be well-founded or not well-founded. Um, the next one would be faith or belief that one will act in a right, proper, or effective way. That one's a little more complicated, so that, that's not just I can do it. but I will do the right thing. Like
2: an example of this that I run into every now and then is discussions of what will happen if I win the lottery. You will not be able to handle all that money coming into your life and you're not prepared for what it's going to do to your your, your social world. But then you think, I don't know. I think I can handle it though. I think I'm the exception. I think I'd be able to put that money to
0: good use and I don't think wealth will change me at all. Right, you're like, I'll give it all to charity. (laughs) Sure, yeah, Uh, and then there, there of course is the third one, which is the quality or state of being certain, and this is sort of different from the others, but I guess it's related. It's like trusting yourself to discern things correctly. It's I know what's correct. I Mm -hmm. know what's right. My beliefs are solid. Yeah. And of course, this uh, division can present a problem for researchers. You have to study different types uh, of overconfidence differently to really understand the spectrum of ways that it affects human life. And we'll come back to that with uh, especially one of the studies that we look at uh, in this pair of episodes. Right,
2: because if we were just to divide confidence up into these three categories as above, you could easily have people all over the spectrum. Someone could be – completely overconfident in their ability to do something and then also be have a very reasonable expectation of, you know, whether or not they do the right thing. You right. Know, they might say, uh, who I don't know if I can uh if I can actually make it across this tightrope, mm. uh, but uh, when, I, when, I, when I fall off, I'm definitely going to soil my britches, you know?
0: <laughs> and I think there is – there's evidence that there's a pretty big difference in how uh, confidence in your abilities and performance manifests versus how confidence in your – the correctness of your beliefs manifests. Yeah. Um, but if we zoom in on specific types of overconfidence, we can find some of the best supported effects in all of psychology really. And so one very recent paper that we wanted to look at was published just this year in 2020 in Psychological Bulletin by Ethan Zell, Jason E. Strickhauser, Konstantin Sadekidis, and Mark D. Alika. And it's called The Better Than Average Effect in Comparative Self-Evaluation, a Comprehensive Review and Meta-Analysis. Uh, And so this was a huge survey of existing published research on something called the better-than-average effect, which is the tendency for people to perceive their abilities, attributes, and personality traits as superior compared to their average peer. So what would that actually mean? Here's an example. Almost everybody thinks that they are a much better than average driver. (laughs) Good drivers correctly think this. Bad drivers incorrectly think this. Few people actually think I am a bad driver or even I am an average driver. But of course, if you just go by the median, which is how this question is phrased in the studies that look at it, Half of drivers are by definition worse than the median at driving skill and yet 90-something percent think they're above the median.
2: Oh, that's a great stat. I wish we'd had that to uh, bust out in our October episode on um, driving and the psychology of driving mm-hmm. uh, because I'm, re- I'm reminded of uh, one of the facts that the researchers of one paper pointed out. And that was that, um, you know, driving is this cognitively demanding task. And yet most of us are able to acquire what you could consider mastery of the vehicle.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Like it's something that is inherently hard, but we do it enough that it becomes easy within the context of human life. And then we we think that we are truly better
2: than most everyone else at it.
0: It's kind of like how playing video games is actually inherently hard as a task. But mm-hmm. just if you do it enough for recreation, it's it's second nature. It's totally easy. Yeah.
2: Boy, that does make me think about, like, say, the people who don't use turn signals. Uh-huh. Are they approaching it from the, the, the standpoint of, I am such a great driver, I do not need to use turn signals?
0: Because they, they, they very likely are.
2: Because <laughs> this strikes me as, like, a true a true act of hubris that demands uh, nemesis come forth and, and smite them in the highway before me. Uh, and I guess sometimes that's exactly what happens. But the po- don't be that nemesis. Yes. You are not the goddess no, no, nemesis.
0: No, no. Your road rage doesn't solve the problem.
2: And I think that is one of the key uh, aspects of, of a belief in something like nemesis is ultimately to to keep people from acting out as nemesis themselves. Yeah. You know, the idea that there must be some sort of divine retribution uh, for you know um you know the, the individual who uh, who engages in this kind of classical hubris like therefore it's not for me to intervene right unless i'm going to you know actually accuse them of such uh,
0: in a legal sense right now of course the driving thing is just one example but it's a great example uh, and there are tons of things like this that the the better than average effect says that you know for traits for abilities for attributes that are perceived as positive, almost all of us tend to think we're better than average on whatever that metric is. Uh, and uh, and of course, that can't be the case. You know, half of us are going to be below average. A lot of us are probably going to be clustered somewhere around average, given what the skill is or what the trade is. And so the question this study was looking at was, okay, how strong is this effect? How robust is it? Uh, you know, so this review includes, quote, a comprehensive meta-analysis of better-than-average studies including data from 124 published articles, 291 independent samples, and more than 950,000 participants. And what it found is that unlike some classic effects in psychology, which in recent years have been undermined by failed replications and fragility revealed by meta-analysis, the basic version of the better-than-average effect is found to be extremely solid. It is super robust across studies, and there's little evidence of publication bias. So uh, the better-than-average effect is definitely a real fact about human brains but that doesn't mean it always works the same for all people or all types of evaluations there are tons of interesting little complications revealed here uh, and discussed in the review and I think we can come back to them in a bit So a minute ago, we were talking about how overconfidence has actually different manifestations that are not the same and you might need to study them separately. Uh, And I came across a couple of interesting papers, both of which had the Berkeley professor Don A. Moore as an author, one from 2008 with co-author Paul J. Healy called The Trouble with Overconfidence, published in Psychological Review, and one from 2017 with Derek Schatz called The Three Faces of Overconfidence, published in Social and Personality Psychology Now, both of these papers explore the idea that there are actually three importantly different kinds of overconfidence, which are sometimes lumped together in in people talking about the uh, psychological overconfidence bias. And they're pointing out that they need to be treated independently, studied independently whenever possible. And I think this is a really helpful place to further categorize types of overconfidence for the rest of our discussion. So are are you ready for the three types? Let's jump in. Okay, so the three types they highlight are overestimation, overplacement, and overprecision. Now, overestimation is thinking that you're better than you are. And specifically, this is an overconfidence in your own qualities in an objective sense, just out there and, you know, floating in the void or compared to some objective measure. So if you think you have $500 in the bank but you really have 300 that's overestimation. If you think you're taller than you are, if you think that you never spell words wrong but in reality you actually do spell words wrong all the time. If you think you can run a mile in six minutes but actually it will take you 14 minutes – these are all cases of overestimation. These are the sort of things that – other people or life
2: itself will, uh, will call you on yeah. uh, uh, typically. Uh, and th- this one's interesting because it, it's a, it kind of has – runs a spectrum from just pure self-delusion. Mm-hmm. Like you could – if you were to think I have a million dollars and you do not have a million dollars, that sort right. of thing. I mean, I mean
0: most of the time people don't overestimate to that extent. But they right. might overestimate how much money they've got in the bank to a small extent.
2: Right. Or, you know, or, or I'm certainly thinking of, of smaller examples that um, – that, that fit into my life. Like, for instance, me, uh, overestimating uh, the amount of time I have before I need to pick my son up from school or overestimating the amount of free time I'll have to say, you know, watch a terrible B movie during a work week.
0: This is very perceptive of you, Robert, because actually we'll come back to this later on, I think probably in the second episode. Mm-hmm. That exact thing you mentioned, the planning fallacy, yeah. is one of the most common and most robustly demonstrated types of overestimation. People regularly think that they will have – they will be able to accomplish more in in less time than they actually can. Yeah.
2: Uh, another example would be, uh, you know, when we pack books to bring on, say, vacations. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes yes. we can be a little uh, you know, overconfident <laughs> in either our, our our reading speed or the amount of time we'll have to uh, to to spend with those books.
0: I know that feeling. Yeah. When I'm when I'm traveling, I'm going on an airplane or something. I bring like four books with me, yeah. and then I end up reading like three pages of one of them. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that's one that we can.
2: I think we can all relate to for sure.
0: Okay, now the next one, that's overestimation. The next one is called overplacement. And this is similar but a little bit different. Overplacement is the exaggerated belief that you are better than others. So it's similar to overestimation except it involves judging yourself relative to other people instead of just judging yourself kind of floating in the void or relative to some objective measure. So this would be like uh, you know, Jeff thinks, okay, if we rated all the guys in the office in, in order of handsomeness, I would be in first place. But in fact, if you did that, he would be in sixth place Uh, he's rating himself relative to the other people in the office Uh, or Jeff thinks he is smarter than all of his siblings but actually he is not or this is a very common one, I think. Jeff thinks he works harder than other people in the country he lives in. But in reality, he works fewer than the average number of hours. So to use a, a direct comparison to differentiate between the two, overestimation would be thinking you're 5'9 when you're actually 5'8. Overplacement would be thinking you're taller than Doug when Doug is actually taller than you.
2: So uh, overplacement really entails a, a broad spectrum of people. Of- potentially subjective measures, you know, because who is deciding who is the most handsome at the office? Like, what is the judging body (laughs) for this? Oh, Uh, and
0: uh, uh, subjectivity, I think, plays a very important role in what types of uh, overconfidence we're most susceptible to, right? Yeah. And we can talk more about that as we go on. But yeah, I think you're exactly right about that, though you can frame it in terms of objective measures like imagining who your coworkers would rank or something like that. Like, you could actually do it and you could guess about how it would go.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, I can I can see that, but it's still, it's you know you're getting into questions of like what are the criteria, uh, you know, for for judging Jeff's appearance or Jeff's intelligence. That's one too. Even though we have we have various uh, you know tests and and ways of measuring these things, but they're not without controversy. They're not without some disagreement, and then we get into different types of intelligence. You know. Um, and as far as work goes, is it possible that Jeff works incredibly hard during an, an average number of hours? Mm-hmm. You know, or should we perhaps shame Jeff's workplace for encouraging an oppressive work atmosphere where <laughs> it's just about how many extra hours you
0: pour into the day? And how attractive you are. Yeah.
2: yeah. And, yeah, and uh, it's, it's, so, you know, overplacement definitions of uh, overconfidence – Really can get into this icky territory I feel of like classism, racism, sexism, uh, meritocracy and and other systems that revolve around putting you in your place and telling you exactly what you can be and what you can accomplish and it can It can actually itself be a form of of sort of the the, the very form of hubris that nemesis would have punished
0: you know? I, yes, I think exactly right, yeah that, even that form of hubris we were talking about earlier that 's like the you know the, uh, the cruelty to other people to show your superiority to them. Mm-hmm. That clearly assumes a, a, an overplacement thing. Yeah. Like you you are just naturally assuming that you are better, more worthy, more deserving of high status and superiority than other people are. Yeah. It's, it's a relative judgment between you and some other, you know, the victim of whatever cruelty you're showing. But again the, the evidence is that we do a lot of this kind of thing and lots of it are, are obviously not evil and cruel like that a lot of it just might be like well, yeah I think I probably work harder than than most of the people at my workplace but actually you don't. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I I don't know. I just see a, I I feel like there's a tremendous potential for cruelty in this of course so, this yeah. one and, and to the to the extent that like even even more moderate versions of it are kind of the um you know the tip of the the talon uh, mm-hmm. on the overall beast. You know.
0: Well, I mean, it's definitely the case with uh, with the driving example. You know, mm-hmm. so the better than average effect that I mentioned earlier—that there's great uh, great evidence for—this would be an example of overplacement, right? Because mm-hmm. you're comparing yourself to other people in general. You're saying like, "No, I'm a better than average driver," but ninety something percent of drivers think that.
2: Yeah. OK, we can, we can come back to discussion on this, but let's get to the third one.
0: OK, the third one is a little different than the other two. The third one is over-precision. And this is one of the definitions that we talked about, you know, from the more uh, everyday dictionary understanding. Over-precision is being too sure that you know the truth. This is what we might also call epistemic overconfidence. It's being overly certain that your beliefs are correct. So uh, to go back to Jeff, Jeff is 100% sure that Vincent Price... Was in Transformers: Age of Extinction. <laughs> like, definitely, he was the voice of one of the robots. He wasn't, but Jeff will argue with you about this. He's like, "No, I'm sure. I've looked it up before. He was in there. I'm positive." Or another, you ever done a trivia night? You've been on a team with somebody like Jeff, who's very confident about all of his answers. You know, he's positive. Write it down. He keeps getting stuff wrong. <laughs> uh,
2: I don't go to a lot of trivia nights, but uh, but I can imagine it.
0: I used to do trivia night. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. it so it's. It's horrible to have somebody like that on your team who's consistently that way. But I also recall the feeling of being like that on an individual question and then getting it wrong and like <laughs> it hurts worse than anything. It's the most embarrassing thing ever.
2: Oh yeah I guess I do kind of remember some of that. Uh, I don't know I also value Jeff for just pushing the, the, the conversation along and like let's go let's go ahead and select something and move on mm-hmm. so we can we can be done with this question.
0: Right if you don't care
2: about the trivia part. Yeah well I mean it's like the trivia part is just a reason to be there in a bar right I mean.
0: Depends on what the prize Money is the prize money is generally like what uh, you know, you know 25 twenty five bar or something. dollars. Yeah. Like. <laughs> now, of course, we know that uh, the over precision is hugely relevant in in real world context, and, you know, in uh, all kinds of everyday stuff, conversations you have with your friends, all the way up to business and politics.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was uh, th- this is interesting, especially in the political. Um, uh, question I was looking at a two thousand and eighteen University of uh, Notre Dame study on overconfidence and it pointed out that in order to avoid the social punishment of overconfidence you know essentially being being called on on your your false uh, you know understanding mm-hmm. of Transformer movies or you know the the future of the economy, whatever it happens to be. It, uh, the, the authors argue that it helps to engage in plausible deniability. So examples include claims that cannot be proven wrong in the moment, though they may be proven wrong later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Or, uh, more importantly, using terminology that is not subject to close scrutiny. So, saying a particular war will be a cakewalk is Mm -hmm. one example they bring up because ultimately, like, what's a cakewalk? You you know, you you could make the argument that, okay, one person died. That's not a cakewalk. One life is important. Or you could bump that. You could, you know, it's totally in the the, uh, eye of the beholder. Another example would be saying that something will be made great. What does it mean to make it great?
0: Like, what is what is great? Put a put a number value on great. But you don't want to put a number value on it because then you could be shown to be wrong exactly. later. So like the more vague you are with your predictions, the harder it is for somebody to later come along and show that you were wrong. Right. And, and this is why the
2: um – uh, I think the, uh, the the trivia example is a, is a perfect example to to bring out because it is a semi artificial uh, situation in which you're really putting your knowledge on the line yeah. and just you know and 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 stating yes this is what I believe this is the fact and then you're um, you're going to be immediately. Uh, uh, called on it if you were wrong.
0: Well, I think – you know, one great example, we're talking about politics. You talked about like making an economy better in the Mm -hmm. future. Like, uh, you know, politicians would always claim to be able to do and they've got different ways that they claim that will happen. I mean I think what people just have to admit in reality is that there's a huge amount of uncertainty in in economics, in political economics. Like you can't actually predict what's going to happen in a future economy. You can make some very – broad, vague generalizations. But, it, you know, you, you're you not going to know when the recession is going to happen. You're not going to know exactly what effect the new tax or budget bill is going to have. You can generalize. But, you know, it's hard to know for sure. There's tons of uncertainty.
2: Right. But that's all – but at the same time, that's a horrible campaign slogan. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: like, we'll do our best. But, you know, but you can't be certain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah so people are going to continue to gravitate towards these statements, especially these vague statements that protect the uh, the liar uh, in question,
0: yeah, so I mentioned these two papers that both had uh, Don A Moore as one of the authors, and they both of them looked at what percentage of the existing papers in the scientific literature uh, on overconfidence. We're looking at each type of overconfidence. And so the 2008 study found that 46 percent of papers were looking at overestimation, uh, 32 percent were overplacement, and 22 percent were overprecision. And then uh, they looked at it again on papers that had come out since that one in the 2017 paper. And they found that 60 percent were overestimation, 21 percent overplacement, and 19 percent on overprecision. One of the main ones we're going to keep looking at in this episode series is about overplacement. It's about the better, better than average effect. But I'm struck by the fact that in both of these analyses, the least attention is going to overprecision, which seems like perhaps the most important of these effects to study.
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe it's one where we, you know, you know, certainly the you know the study I mentioned is not is not really presenting something that is not already intrinsically understood, mm-hmm. You know, lying and uh, inflating estimation, basically playing the, the social game. I mean, that's what humans do. So maybe we're just, we have a, a built-in a tendency to safeguard ourselves, again, except in semi-artificial situations like tests and trivia nights.
0: I mean, that's a big problem. This is, of course, a problem in all kinds of arenas Mm -hmm. of psychology research, but it's definitely a big problem in studying overconfidence because as several of the authors I've been reading have pointed out, it can be really hard to recreate the types of overconfidence projection scenarios that occur in the real world in the lab. Right. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break, but we'll be right back.
1: Zoom-o play
0: All right, we're back. Okay, so I wanted to go back to that paper that I mentioned earlier in the episode, the one that just came out this year in Psychological Bulletin, the the, uh, comprehensive review and meta-analysis of the existing research on the better-than-average effect, the the thing where people just tend to think that, you know, they evaluate themselves as better-than-average on all different kinds of qualities. Uh, So the researchers themselves in this paper from 2020, and again, that was Zell et al., uh, they define it thusly. They say, B-T-A-E, Is the proclivity to rate one's current abilities, attributes, or personality traits more favorably than those of the average peer – Now, there's a ton of stuff in this paper, but I wanted to talk just briefly about a few of its major findings. Of course, as we mentioned earlier, the paper found uh, robust, highly replicable evidence for the better-than-average effect. They did find different effect sizes given different scenarios, but generally the effect is there. It is really how our brains tend to work most of the time. So one thing that I thought was very interesting, and I think this ties into some of the vagueness that you were just talking about, Robert – abilities versus traits. The researchers here found that The better-than-average effect is significantly stronger for personality traits than it is for abilities. So, for example, people on average are more likely to overplace themselves for semi-fixed personal traits like intelligence, honesty, or attractiveness, or sense of humor than they are to overplace themselves on specific abilities, like how well will I do on this math test, you know? Though they show the better-than-average effect for both, the effect is stronger for traits than it is for abilities does that make sense?
2: Yes yeah uh, and again, yeah it, yeah again it comes back to something that is easily proven easily put into the put to the test like say your ability shooting what for, you know free throws in basketball uh, uh, you know versus something that is far more subjective
0: yeah and the authors there agree they, they think this is quote likely because personality traits are more abstract and less subject to external verification than abilities. And I think that's not just like in the moment you're making the prediction about yourself, you know, not just because you fear embarrassment. I think your estimation of your own abilities is probably generally more truly accurate because you have more chances in your life to have your your self-impressions adjusted by meeting obstacles and, you, you know, being regulated by them. Right, right. You You actually very rarely run into scenarios in your life where somebody can say, you're not as smart as you think you are. Or if they can mm-hmm. say that, you know you just like it's easy to dismiss.
2: Yeah, I guess I get the sense that you know certainly as you as you age there's more of an erosion of those uh, <laughs> those tendencies as opposed to just you know uh, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, a
0: sharp impact on them. Well, that's another funny thing. There is a role of age in this. The meta-analysis revealed that the better-than-average effect was negatively correlated across lifespan. So, on average, the younger you are, the more likely you are to overplace yourself relative to peers. Younger people th- show more better-than-average effect than older people.
2: Just like Aristotle told us. <laughs> Again, he pointed out that the young and the rich. Are the ones most likely to suffer from hubris.
0: That's funny. I wonder what exactly explains that. Could it be that throughout life you're literally just getting more information, like you're mm-hmm. learning more about your own limitations, and that tempers your over overplacement about your own abilities? Could
2: be. I mean, I mean, again, we're kind of getting into to tropes here that. To, to varying degrees, uh, you know, uh, can be applied to, to actual real life individuals, but there is that idea of the of of the the, the prideful rich individual as being kind of like a man baby that, yes. that has never ne- never had to really be proven wrong, that has just been surrounded by yes men, for example, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah but i i also do want to admit i mean we don't really know it it's possible that it doesn't have anything to do with getting extra information it could right. just be psychological facts about the young versus the old
2: well i mean it could it could tie into just the yeah the, the basic the the different psychology of of a young person who is who is like an arrow leaving the bow you know like uh. the whole idea is that yeah when you're young you're bold you want to break away from your family because that's ultimately how you're going you're you're just obeying the genetic mission of the organism
0: That's true it could it could be that there are stronger pressures in favor of inflated confidence in a younger brain Yeah Here's another interesting one negative better than average effect versus positive better than average effect the authors write quote When examining 36 matched comparisons in which other variables were held constant, the better-than-average effect was larger for positive dimensions than negative dimensions, which suggests that the motive to self-enhance or exaggerate one's positive qualities may be more pronounced than the motive to self-protect or minimize one's negative qualities. Okay, so if I give you a chance to rate yourself – compared to others. I say, you know, how would you rate yourself uh, in terms of your honesty hmm. versus I say, how would you rate yourself in terms of deceptiveness? That's sort of asking the same question. It seems the better than average effect manifests in both, like that you're more likely to overestimate your honesty, underestimate your deceptiveness. But the effect is stronger for exaggerating the good trait than it is for minimizing the negative trait. Hmm. wonder why that is.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess, it, you know, in a broad sense, it just kind of comes back to playing the social game, right, of yeah. just of presenting yourself to your fellow humans.
0: I wonder if it plays into our, our sense of, like, having a rich personality that we would imagine ourselves as having strong positive qualities and allowing some negative qualities as opposed to, you know, just uh, not really getting too adventurous with strong positive qualities but denying negative qualities. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, perhaps so. Uh, The study also – they looked at gender. They found no gender association. Men and women were equally likely to engage in the better-than-average effect. They looked at culture and through some types of analysis, they didn't find much difference between cultures – But they said, quote, an analysis of 11 matched comparisons yielded a significantly larger BTAE in the case of European-Americans than East Asians. It's possible that the better-than-average effect was larger among European-Americans because the dimensions were of greater cultural importance to them. So like the specific traits being measured in that test might have been phrases or traits that were considered more important in European-American culture It's possible. Mm. Um, But then they also say, indeed, the three studies that considered dimension importance found that European Americans exhibited a larger, better-than-average effect on individualistic traits, but there was no difference between cultural groups on collectivistic traits." Moreover, although the better-than-average effect varied by culture, it was generally robust in both European Americans and East Asians, which supports the position that self-enhancement is universal. Hmm.
2: You know, it, these findings do remind me of our previous discussions on how uh, the how how, the, how the East and West differ to certain degrees in how we view you know the nature of character, whether it is something that Emerges internally, or it is subject to the uh, you know, the forces of environment and culture.
0: Yes, uh, yeah, the 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 greater emphasis on context. Yeah, uh, and this also seems to tie into. Uh, actually, I think this was the context in which that discussion happened was when we were talking about fundamental attribution error. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that it seemed like. By some measures, East Asian cultures were less prone to the fundamental attribution error than like European Americans were.
2: Right. Yeah. Th- though they were still prone to it. Yeah. Just basically the numbers were a little different between East and West.
0: And that seems to be the case here too. Like both are prone to the better than average effect, but by some measures, it's a little stronger among European Americans, especially on individualistic traits. Here's one more that I thought was interesting. They found there was a medium-sized positive association between the better-than-average effect and both self-esteem and life satisfaction. Hmm. Quote – as anticipated, therefore, the tendency to perceive oneself as above average was associated with greater self-esteem and happiness. However, the moderate size of these associations indicates that the better-than-average effect is not redundant with self-esteem and happiness. So they're saying it's it's clearly not the case that just like self-esteem and happiness are the better-than-average effect. That it's not just a one-for-one thing, but there is a correlation.
2: Yeah, I imagine that, that some listeners might – might have already been been thinking on this a little bit, uh yeah. because we spent a fair amount of of time here in this episode, sort of driving home the the fact that you're probably not as good as you think you are uh which <laughs> well you might be about some things About some things, but uh you know the the ultimate message is kind of depressing to hear <laughs> you know oh, no. it's, it's kind of like, oh well, oh I I thought I, I was an honest person, but I don't know. Joe said I'm not, so I I guess, didn't say I that. I guess I should feel bad about myself. Come
0: on. Uh, <laughs> but um, that is not the message of this episode. No, I think it's to like— it's to to be wary about positive self-impressions. It's Mm -hmm. not that, you know, you are actually really bad. It's that our brains, on average, have a tendency to inflate positive self-impressions, especially when it comes to things like personality traits. It's worth being aware of that fact about ourselves and as it applies to others. Obviously, it's not something that applies just to you. This is something that appears to apply to human beings.
2: Right. Yeah. So I guess one way to look at it would be, say, on the subject of generosity. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not to say, okay, Joe said I'm not as generous as i as I think I am, and I should feel depressed over this, but more, we should realize that okay, if we value our generosity that's that's great. We may very well be overestimating our generosity, mm-hmm. and therefore
0: that's just a reason to lean into the the thing you value, you yeah. Know? Uh, Another way to do it is to is to make your self perception of your positive traits uh dependent on real world performance. Mm-hmm. Uh so for example, if you want to think I'm a generous person, don't just trust your gut about these free floating positive qualities, prove it to yourself, right. right? You have to do things that make it true. Yeah, what would a generous person do in this scenario and then do it. Yeah.
2: All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and cut this episode off here. But we will be back in the next episode to continue discussions of overconfidence. Uh, you know what it means from a psychological standpoint. We'll also get in, into a little bit into the, the business scenario uh, mm-hmm. here, which is uh, w- which I, I have to say is a lot more interesting I mean, than it sounds. What
0: well, are you saying? There's overconfidence in business. Yes. No. Believe no it way. or not. Believe it or not, there is. Uh, so we'll
2: we'll discuss that as well in the next episode. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, such as you know some of these episodes we've been referring back to here, uh, or if you want to check out Invention, our other show, you can find them both wherever you get your podcasts. If you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, that will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show, but you can find us anywhere. And wherever that happens to be, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe, uh, because uh, those actions really help us out in the long run.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your Stuff
1: to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.